Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, and as I say that, I realize that you may not be able to see your Bible. Um, it's, it is dark in here tonight, but that's okay. It actually reminds me a lot of the first collective that I ever came to, which was August of 2020. And it was the first night that we met in this building, which like back then it was kind of our new building. And there were no lights or very little lighting, and the AC was not working in the middle of August. And so <laughs> I, was, I was not necessarily comfortable. And I left there with the impression that Collective was not trying to entertain me or make me feel comfortable. <laughs> and it's true. Um, I just want to say that that's still true today. We are not trying in any way to put on a show here. Um, our purpose is to glorify God, and we're going to do that by reading His Word together, studying it, um, singing and worship together, and fellowshipping afterwards. So that being said, I want to welcome you all. My name is Caleb. Um, I'm on staff here with Collective, and I am just so thankful that I get to be here with you all tonight. Um, without you guys, I would not be able to walk as a Christian and live my life as a Christian. Um, there really is no Christian without Christian community. And so I really mean it when I say that this is one of the greatest uh, blessings that I get to have. So I'm thankful for you all. Um, the title for our sermon tonight, if you all are taking notes, is Marathon Pregame Speech. I'm going to explain here in a little bit. I'll get back to it and explain it, but marathon pregame speech, okay? So first, uh, first thing I want to do is read the text. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. Let's read together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay, so we'll go back to the title, because I said that I would explain it. Um, you are probably familiar with the concept of a pregame speech. Um, you may have seen like a coach do this before a sporting event, um, or maybe, like me, you watched the movie Braveheart, and you sat there and cried as you watched William Wallace give the famous speech to his soldiers before they went off to battle. Um, maybe you've seen a mom or a dad give this speech to their child before their first day at school. In each case, speech. So in this passage, compared to a race before, and that's because the Bible actually does make that comparison. Um, we're going to see that later on in Hebrews chapter 12. And so the reason that I titled this sermon a marathon pregame speech, kind of, I guess, even at the risk of sounding a little corny, um, it's because that this is the lens through which I want us to view this text in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. This is a beautifully encouraging an inspiring passage, but I believe that the danger we face in reading it with an incorrect and improper heart posture is that we can easily just kind of get hyped up for one day and then kind of go back to doing what we've always done. I, I want to avoid that, and I want to encourage you all to do the same. As believers, we are in this race together for the rest of our lives, okay? It is a marathon. We would have missed the point of this passage entirely if we read it tonight and then sang loudly afterwards, maybe even kind of, you know, raised our hands just because we're so pumped up, and then went back home and went about our week as though nothing had changed. So when we sing after this, I don't want us to sing and raise our hands just because we feel good in the moment. I want us to sing because we are running to Christ, and I want us to raise our hands because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is coming back to take us home. So before we exposit this passage, let's pray together to that end. Dear God, um, we love you. We want to come and, and worship you and honor you as, just, as King of kings and Lord of lords, God. I thank you and praise you for, for being a, a faithful promise maker, God. Um, you make promises and you keep them. Um, God, I just also want to confess my own inability to understand Scripture without help from your Spirit. God, I thank you for your Spirit that uh, you guide us and you show us and convict us, God, uh, what is true. Um, God, I thank you for your Word and for Scripture. Thank you for entrusting it to us. Help us to steward it faithfully and, and to uh, read it and understand it, God. Um, I thank you for the confidence that we have in Christ that we're going to see in this passage tonight, God. I thank you for the reward that is going to come to us one day um, 
that, that is going to come to those who faithfully endure, God. We see that in this text as well, and I just thank you for that. Um, we ask for wisdom and for understanding tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to break this down. We'll move into a little bit of exposition. So there are three major movements in this text that I'm kind of going to break up into sections. So the first section, which we're going to call, Therefore Let Us, is an exhortation for the believer to consider the priesthood of Christ and in light of that truth, pursue godly actions. So this part is found in verses 19 through 25. And in your Bibles, it should kind of be broken up into paragraphs already. Um, There should be three paragraphs, and I'm just going to go each paragraph as a section. Um, The second section, which we're going to call Sin to Avoid, is found in verses 26 through 31. Here the author of Hebrews warns against the dangers of habitual sin and the wrath of God. This section details the sobering reality of the consequences of our sin. It also distinguishes between sin and deliberate sin, which is a lack of repentance. This is a very important uh, delineation for the assurance of our salvation as believers. Now, this middle section is going to appear pretty grim, um, but it is not without hope. The third section, which we're going to call Promise to Claim, points us to the finish line. It emphasizes the necessity of faithful endurance in the life of the believer and guarantees a reward to those who remain faithful. This section, as well as the previous ones, are theologically foundational to our faith and crucial for us to understand as believers. So now that we've laid the groundwork, let's get into the first section. All right. Look with me at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Okay, comma. I want us to pause here and think about the magnitude of what is being said in these three verses. For thousands of years, up until now, the Hebrew people had been under the law and the sacrificial system. They had no way to attain holiness and righteousness that was permanent and lasting. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So the reality was that the Hebrews had no perfect way to correct their standing before God. However, the past three chapters have taught us that the new covenant that Christ initiated with his death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. We saw in the last chapter that Christ's sacrifice covered sin once and for all, is paid for. For the first time in human history, we can say, since we have confidence, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I want us to think about that. Before Christ initiated the new covenant, nobody could approach God with confidence that they wouldn't be immediately struck down for their sins. But Jesus, through his flesh, opened a new and living way through the curtain that separated us from God. So now that we have that in our minds, I want us to look at verses 22 through 25 together, okay? So I want us to uh, regard these verses following the therefore section as the beginning of the Christian race that we will run for the rest of our lives. So just imagine the institution of the new covenant as the, uh, the starter pistol for our marathon run as believers, all right? So therefore, in light of everything that we've learned about the high priesthood in the new covenant, 
Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is the first of three exhortations from the author in this first section. Here the author encourages us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and with our bodies washed with pure water. So what does this mean? Well, I believe we can conclude that this exhortation is first and foremost a call to belief in Christ and repentance from our sins. So if that is something that you have never done before, then this passage for you is a call to salvation. So think about it with me. If I say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the great high priest, then by default, I am saying that I believe him to be the promised Messiah. I believe that he fulfilled every law and prophecy in the Old Testament. I believe that the entire Old and New Testament points to him. I believe that he lived a sinless life. I believe that he was killed and resurrected. And I believe that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding on our behalf. So in order for Jesus to have become the great high priest, he had to have done all those things. And so my confessing Jesus as great high priest is my confessing him as Lord and Savior. Again, this is nothing new to us. The last three chapters have have established this already. Um, So now considering everything that we have learned about Christ, we are to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So now that we've encountered truth, The next step is to believe it. Draw near in full assurance of faith. Set your heart on the truth that you have learned and believe it. And then after that, the next step, as we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, is that we do so with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Turn from your sin. This is the gospel message. It is simply beautiful. And it is laid out so plainly here for us to see. Because Jesus is the great high priest, draw near in faith with a clean heart. If you are not a Christian, this is a gift for you to have now. The burden and the penalty of your sin can be paid for. The one thing that you know is wrong that you've been doing for years and years can be forgiven and put behind you. You can have a clean heart and a clean conscience through belief in Christ, and repentance from your sin. For the first time in your life, you can have true joy and true purpose because you are doing what God created you to do, which is to draw near to him. I want you to consider what is holding you back from accepting this joy. It can be yours. Tonight, it can be yours. Now, to the Christians in the room, I don't want you to tune out this section and think that this command isn't for you because you've already done this once before. We need to remember the audience to whom this letter is being written. These exhortations are primarily for believers. There is no qualifier in this text uh, that assumes that we should ever stop drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, or that we should ever stop having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We are to be continually confessing our belief in the great high priest and continually repenting of sin and turning towards him. These passages passages that we have seen in Hebrews absolutely annihilate the cultural heresy that says we can trust in Christ once 
and then we're covered. And then after that, we can just do whatever we want. There's a very, very severe warning uh, in the next section against that mentality. Our faith in Christ is supposed to be constantly renewed and strengthened. And we see more of the same idea in the next few verses. Look with me at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, so this is where the marathon language kind of starts to come into play. So now that we have placed our faith in Jesus and had our hearts cleansed, let us hold fast without wavering. Okay, so this implies uh, endurance over a very significant period of time. And this is also in keeping with the logic that we're seeing so far, right? If our faith is based on a one-time confession, then there is no need to hold fast to anything, right? That is not the case, however. The call to the believer is to hold fast without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Run the race with endurance and with hope, knowing that there is a reward to be had at the end because God made a promise and he will keep it. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right. I want to take a moment to point out the fact that every exhortation in this first section has begun with the phrase, let us. So consider the language in the past few verses. It says, our hearts in verse 22, right? Our bodies, our hope, stir up one another, encouraging one another. The language implies that we as believers are to be part of a larger body than ourselves and we are to live in union with that body. We simply cannot do these things on our own. That is why it is imperative that believers are members of a local church. Without the local church, it is not possible to live in obedience to the commands of God. We don't push local church membership at Campus Collective because it's some agenda that we have. We really believe that it is biblical, and we want to live in obedience to God's word, and we want to encourage other believers to do the same. Now, let's take a moment to look at the commands in these two verses. First, we're commanded to consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. Now, notice the fact that love and good works are used in conjunction together. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic... Uh, powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Good works done out of step with love serve no true and good purpose. Now, this truth frees us from the constraints of legalism and self-righteousness. This is very pertinent to our culture. So many of you may have grown up in churches where you were told to do good simply because it's the right thing to do. Uh, And often, you may have also probably heard that whoever did the most good was considered the most 
holiest, and best. That is not true, okay? We don't do good works simply because we're supposed to. We do good works because we love God and we love one another. And furthermore, if we do in fact love our fellow believers, we will encourage them and spur them on towards love and good works. So this is where the concepts of discipleship and accountability come from. In our marathon race that we're running as believers, we are all on the same team running together, and we're instructed to watch out for one another and spur one another on to the finish line. We were not meant to run this race on our own. This logic continues more directly in verse 25. Read with me. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day draws near. Now, it appears to me that the author of Hebrews is kind of calling some people out here, I guess. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever, when I read this in my head, I kind of read it like sort of snark, in a snarky way. <laughs> um, I read it like, like not neglecting to meet together, as is you know, the habit of some, and like the author's kind of pointing at this group of people who's not meeting together. Um, obviously, I don't think that's what was intended here. But what we do know, evidently, there was a group of people that had been in the habit of not meeting together. And we are told here to avoid that habit and instead encourage one another. This more directly addresses the need to involve yourself in a local church. Now, you may be wondering, why do I keep saying local church? What is so important about that? And does a campus ministry not cut it? So these are all great questions to ask. If you find yourself asking those questions, you are on the right track. So we have to keep the marathon analogy in mind. We've already seen that once we become a Christian, these commands never become irrelevant for us, right? There will never be a point as a believer when we can finally just kind of quit, you know, drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, right? That's not going to happen. We're supposed to be doing that continually. The same idea is expressed here. There is no caveat in this text that says we can neglect meeting together once our four years of college are done and we're busy with a full-time job. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm against campus ministry or other forms of Christian ministry. Um, obviously, I, since I'm teaching here tonight, I'm not against them. Um, all I'm saying is that it is imperative for you as a believer to be involved in a church in the area that you live in for the rest of your life. How can we obey the previous commands if we are unplugged from local Christian community? We simply can't. And additionally... I mean, think about what we're being commanded to do here. Meeting together with other believers is one of the greatest joys that a person can have. I mean, it isn't like, you know, we aren't being uh, commanded to do an arduous task here. As Christians, we are supposed to partake of and contribute to the joy of being the bride of Christ. That is something that we should seek out and desire. It is our joy to be a part of a local church. We're going to close this section with an exhortation to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. Now, the word day in my Bible is written with a capital D, which I thought was interesting. So we see the same word used and written in the same way in 1 Corinthians 3, 13, which I'll read for us. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So, for the sake of context and understanding, Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church in this, this third chapter here to address divisions within the church. Evidently, there were factions within the body that were following different church leaders more closely than they were following Christ. Um, some were claiming to follow Paul. Others were claiming to follow another church leader named Apollos. And Paul rebukes them by saying that neither his nor Apollos' works were instrumental in the growth of the kingdom because ultimately the growth comes from God. And then he goes on to say how his works in the ministry of the church are nothing more than laying a foundation for another believer to continue building upon. So verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let's, uh, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now back to verse 13, each one's works will become manifest for the day, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So two points to take away here. One, there is a day, evidently with a capital D, coming, when people will be judged according to the works that they have done. Second point to take away, what we do with our lives in the meantime does matter. It is not insignificant, and it will be taken into consideration. Now, I don't I don't want us to panic as we close this last section out, okay? So the next two sections are going to continue the logic that we've been building on so far, and they're going to bring resolution to the tension of judgment that we're seeing here. Look at verse 26. Now this is the beginning of our second section, which we are going to call sin to avoid. Read with me. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Okay. So if you've been walking with us all year through Hebrews, um, you should be able to look at this text and understand that it does not support the notion that you can lose your salvation as a believer. Now, this point has been previously made in Hebrews, but I would just want to take a moment to kind of reiterate it. Um, the key to understanding this is in the word deliberately. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Um, back in November, Luke Ham, if you remember, preached an awesome sermon from Hebrews 6 on the confidence that believers can have in their salvation and spiritual growth. His point was that growth in the Christian life comes ultimately from God, but it is evidenced in our lives by our continual and willful repentance from sin and turning to Christ. If our lives are marked by these characteristics, we have no reason to be fearful of losing our salvation. We are free as believers to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. These words hold true. Now, again, 
to understand the point of this passage, we have to consider that the author is writing to believers. In this section, the author is very pointedly calling out people who claim Christianity but remain in willful, deliberate, and unrepentant sin. If a person receives the knowledge of the truth, which is the gospel, and it doesn't change their life and their actions, it is reasonable to infer that they have never truly repented and therefore were never saved to begin with. Now, this is a dire and a severe warning. Additionally, this is a diagnostic passage for the believer. So we've seen some of these kind of passages already. Um, There were some in Hebrews 3 and then 5 and 6 as well. So if you claim Christ, but your life is marked by deliberate sin without compunction, then you may not have ever repented fully to begin with. Somewhere in your heart, there is a fundamental lack of faith that has prevented you from repenting from your sins. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, then you need to evaluate your heart and root out your unbelief. The consequences of remaining in the state of unrepentant unbelief is that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume. And it doesn't stop there either. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this section is going to require very little interpretation on my part um, because it, uh, it speaks very boldly for itself. There's, there's no mystery about what is being communicated here. Um, I do, however, want to spend some time discussing some key elements of these verses so that we can best understand them. It is so important for us not to settle for a surface-level understanding of the Bible. Shallow interpretations of Scripture lead to false doctrine, strife, and division. What we believe about the Bible and how we interpret it shapes the way that we live our lives. So just because the passage is, is scary doesn't mean that we should shy away from doing the work of interpreting and understanding it. So let's dive in. All right. Essentially, verses 28 through 31 are a juxtaposition of the old versus the new. So in verse 28, the author brings up the example of the severity of punishment under the Old Testament law. The consequences of breaking it were so strict that it required only a handful of witnesses to condemn a person to death. Then in verse 29, the author asks a rhetorical question the point of which is to emphasize the, gra- uh, the gravity of the weight of unrepentant sin under the new covenant. Now, remember last week when Dustin said that the old and new covenant was not necessarily bad and good, but it was rather good and better. So the same logic can be applied to the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is what the author is doing here. So essentially, if you thought that the old covenant punishment was bad, the new covenant punishment is worse. So because the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, we can expect a greater judgment if we trample underfoot the Son of God, 
profane the blood of the covenant, and outrage the spirit of grace by living a life of unrepentant sin after having received the knowledge of the truth. And then verse 30 bolsters this logic by quoting Deuteronomy 32, which establishes the just and vengeful nature of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, this passage would have struck fear into the hearts of the Hebrew people to whom it was written. These quotes from Deuteronomy would have been very familiar to them, um, as would have been the consequences of breaking the law of Moses. The gravity of what is being said here would have caused introspection on the part of the Jewish recipients of this letter. It should do the same for us today as believers. This section is not a tactic to scare you into doing more good things and less bad things, okay? It is a warning against willful disobedience and deliberate sin, and it is a call for us as Christians to consider the weight of sin and how we should hate it and run from it. The reality is that as believers who are being sanctified, we will continue to sin, but we should confess it and run from it at all costs, and we should hate it as much as God hates it. Remember, this is a marathon that we're running. We don't have time to get caught up in the pitfalls of sin. Run from it. This is going to bring us to our third and final section in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, the final section, which if you remember, we're calling Promise to Claim, it brings resolution to the tension of the warnings in the previous section. I realize that this has been just a heavy, heavy passage at times, um, but there's going to be resolution and there is hope. So we're running our race, all right? We're running to Christ and we're running away from sin. This is not a simple task. <laughs> I just want to kind of get that out in the open. It is not easy, but the author of Hebrews is going to show us in these next verses that endurance in this difficult task is evidence of our salvation and gives us good reason to continue running with endurance. All right, so let's pick up in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better, and, a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. All right, this section is going to begin on a much different note than the previous section. It is evident that the author of Hebrews knew his audience well because here we see him recalling instances where they exhibited great faith and endurance in the face of persecution. The list of difficulties that they faced included reproach, affliction, imprisonment, and loss of property. These are not insignificant struggle, uh, struggles. Like These are rough and difficult things to go through. The evidence of their faith, however, includes endurance, partnership, 
compassion, confidence, and joy. Even in the face of trials that would have caused their faith to waver and for them to fall into unbelief, the Hebrews didn't cower, but rather responded in faith and counted their sufferings as joy and their material losses as gain. All this because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. That is why we run the race. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, sin is discouraging and dangerous. And yes, we will encounter hard struggles with sufferings that will test our endurance. But we do all this because we know that we have something greater than anything that the fleeting pleasures of sin can offer. We have a better possession, one that will never go away. Therefore, we need to hold fast to our confidence in the saving and redeeming work of Christ in our lives. For in that confidence, there is great reward. We shouldn't throw away our belief and our faith in the fact that Jesus saved us once and for all, but rather we need to cling to it and let it motivate us to run away from our sins and into the arms of our Savior. If we are to submit our lives to the will of God, we must have endurance. The will of God is that we know him and love him and that we turn from our nasty, ugly sin and run to him, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This brings him the most glory, and this is what he wants more than anything. He wants us to endure to the end, and he cannot wait for us to cross the finish line into glory with him. God wants to give us the reward that he has promised, and that is why we endure. Let's keep going. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So we have another Old Testament reference here. This one is from Habakkuk 2. Now, the last Old Testament reference that we looked at was quite ominous. Um, We saw a reference to the death penalty from the Mosaic Law, as well as a reference from Deuteronomy that described the vengeance and the wrath of God against sin. This reference carries a little different tone. It alludes to the return of Christ and the day of judgment in a little more hopeful manner than we've seen previously. So, Jesus is coming back. We see that here. We also see that there is a way to be made righteous. That is by faith. However, to the one who shrinks back from faith, the Lord takes no pleasure in that person. There is no reward for the one who continues in unbelief and shrinks away from a lifetime of enduring faith. And now for the closer, band, if you would make your way back up, please. Um, we have reached the crescendo of our marathon pregame speech. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is the promised reward, the preservation of our soul. The gift that we receive for a lifetime of faith in the work of our great high priest is the most fitting reward for those who have endured difficulty and trials. 
We may be running a marathon of strife and suffering, but this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We can run with joy in the midst of suffering, knowing that our um, God is, our reward is sure, and that the race has already been won by the perfect Son of God who went as a forerunner on our behalf. And one day when we have finished the race and when we have kept the faith, we will claim our crown of righteousness that is already laid up for us. It says in 2 Timothy 4, we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He opened the new and living way for us through the curtain and into the presence of God. We have a way to run back to the Father who created us. Yes, there will be trials and there will be persecution. And there will be times when we are tempted to waver in our faith and fall into unbelief. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So with that truth in mind, let's sing together and let's worship the Savior to whom we're running.